0: Welcome everybody to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I'm your host Laura Rutford, a physiotherapist, Pilates instructor and fellow hippie. We're here to talk about all things hip dysplasia, to build a community to support and guide each other through the ups and the downs. If you like the podcast, please share it and rate it. It really helps others to find it too. If you have any questions or feedback, please email me at laura at I also just wanted to let you know that I am now on Patreon with my library of hip friendly Pilates and mobility classes, my Stand Stronger program, and lots more useful hip friendly tools. If you want to have a look at this, check this out at patreon.com forward slash help for hip dysplasia, or you can find it in the link in my Instagram bio or on my website. Let's get on with the show.
1: Welcome everybody to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I am so excited to bring you on my guest today, Dr. Timothy Amazola. Hi, Tim.
2: Hello, how are you?
1: Good, thank you. Is it okay if I call you Tim?
2: Absolutely. That's my preference, so thank you.
1: Lovely. Um, so I want to introduce you to everybody, give you everybody a little bit of a backstory. Um, so uh, Tim is a triple board certified doctor in family medicine, sports medicine, and MSK ultrasound. Um, and I think I've got this right that you practice as a non-operative orthopedic and regenerative regenerative medicine specialist. Um, that your professional passion is to bring restoration healing and hope to those looking to return to the life they love and the people they are called to be I loved this introduction and it's something that I
0: absolutely stole off your website which is also wonderful by the way we're going to come back to talk about your website and how much information there is on that um, but it it just made me really want to ask you a little bit more about where this passion came from. What were your choices to go into non-operative medicine um, and kind of what brought you to, to do the stuff that you do right now?
2: Sure. Yeah. That's a great question. Well, yeah, it's a long journey. It's obviously um, it goes back to medical school and decisions about what specialization I wanted to go into. And I think because I was always very active and into sports, I was choosing between orthopedic surgery and, uh, and family medicine because my other passion is people. I just love people. And, um, and so as I went through my journey, I, I saw what happened in the operating room in the orthopedic surgical suites and, and I saw the kind of interactions. And then I compared that to the family medicine folks that I worked with. And I just I think I just aligned up personally so much more with the family medicine folks that I just ended up in going in that direction and then was very pleasantly surprised to find out that you could do a sports medicine fellowship out of that specialty, and so once I found that out, then it was really obvious what I was going to be doing. Um, so that took a that took a bit of time. That I think it was I was in the Air Force at the time, the United States Air Force, and I was a family physician for six years with them, but always had a sports medicine practice on the side even before having done my fellowship, and then uh, was selected through the Air Force for training as a sports medicine specialist, did that training in 2003 to 2004 here in Denver, Colorado at the University of Colorado, and then um, was promptly taken back to become the team physician at the United States Air Force Academy, taking care of the athletes there. And I've always worked super closely ever since fellowship with orthopedic surgeons. So now I was kind of Uh, on the team with them, if you will. And I was usually outnumbered. So at the Air (laughs) Force Academy, I think there was eight orthopedic surgeons and me taking care of all the student athletes. Um, We did that for a few years. And then eventually I found my way up to Denver uh, outside of the Air Force in an orthopedic practice that was mostly, it had all the surgical specialties. And I was their first non-surgical orthopedic specialist, if you will, to join their team. And that was because they, they found it unique that I did the musculoskeletal ultrasound. And there was some early data emerging about you know, being able to follow up on rotator cuff repairs and um, maybe treating like plantar fasciitis instead of with surgery um, with platelet-rich plasma. So there was, there, was some, there was some interest in what I had to offer because with the ultrasound we could then be more precise in our diagnostic work something that maybe MRI couldn't do as well or x-ray and, um, and then there was also this interventional work with plasma platelet-rich plasma for conditions that the, interestingly, that the foot and ankle surgeon didn't want to operate on. And so he felt that this was a better choice. So that's that's kind of how it, I kind of got pushed into that direction. And then uh, again, there was, I think there was like eight of surgeons and myself. And um, and so I worked with all the different specialties with the joint replacement uh, surgeons, to the sports medicine, shoulder and knee, to the foot and ankle, to the hand, to the spine. and. Um, and so I had a lot of opportunity with the use of musculoskeletal ultrasound to begin to explore all these orthopedic injuries. And then just kind of, I guess it was a, a choosing for me that, that I was supposed to be good at that. It was kind of a gifting, mm-hmm. if you will. And the ultrasound really made a lot of sense. Um, and then I started teaching the ultrasound. And, and so that's kind of propelled me into this, you know, from family medicine to sports medicine, to the use of ultrasound into the realm of orthopedics and then there's, I've, I learned that there was this huge gap between, didn't matter how good I was with the ultrasound at getting a steroid shot to a location, steroids were still going to be limited, right? By four to six weeks of pain relief, uh, followed by now what, you know, and then maybe some more physical therapy. And if that didn't work, then still a surgical intervention.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I saw this huge gap between physical therapy and steroid shots and surgery, And so that's where my life now exists, is in that fairly large span of space um, between the two. And I think with regenerative uh, treatments, whatever it is that you might put into that syringe, but if you can accurately find the problem with the ultrasound and you can look into someone's body and and see the the pathology and then get a needle tip right to that area and then put something that could help the body restore its healing capacity and get it going back in that direction, that's really how I spend my days and it's been nothing short of revolutionary in my career and and uh, life-changing for many of my clients so even though it still seems like it's somewhat fringy to the medical world in my world uh, it's it's just a joy and it really has it's allowed me to um, impact people's lives in a way that I never could before kind of developing all those various skill sets so I think that's where the passion comes from Is that when you start to see lives change, uh, then it really, uh, it stimulates something inside of you to keep going.
0: I get goosebumps just uh, listening to you talk. I don't know if you can see those on the camera, but (laughs) but yeah, the the passion that you have for what you do is just absolutely incredible. And, you know, it's one of the reasons that I wanted us to be able to have this conversation. We we spoke possibly about a month ago now. um, And from learning and connecting with you, I learned so much about this area that, isn't something that's talked about a lot in the UK where I am um and it's something that I didn't have a big knowledge base about and I just learned so much from the conversation with you that I just thought so many people would benefit from hearing some of the other options because in the hip dysplasia community there is a lot of issues with chronic pain and there are a lot of people that really struggle long term um with some of the issues and again they're stuck between that stage right you said that physiotherapy Um, can do a lot but there's a big gap between what can be done there and then you know the invasive procedures of surgery Um, and there was a um, quote on a study that I really want to talk about today um, by Dr Jennifer Saunders um, where she says that actually physio with SIJ dysfunction so in the lumbo-pelvic region that actually physio can fix up to about 80% of those issues but that 20% gap is a large percentage of people um that are stuck mm-hmm. in this situation where they have pain but they don't know what to do about it um don't know whether surgery is going to fix it so you know this this area this group of people is where you really shine right
2: well right it's it's been interesting it's been that it has been another journey for me if i'm being honest i didn't really want to be a specialist in this area I really wanted to do, uh, you know, rotator cuffs and knees and ankles and elbows, <laughs> because I've always had a passion for orthopedics and sports medicine. But it seemed that ever since I did a lecture with a there's a, a pelvic floor therapist group in town and a number of physical therapists that get together with that particular physician, um, and they had me as a, as a guest lecturer and I gave a talk on the various targets that of the things that I can treat orthopedically that could have benefit for people with lumbopelvic pain, right? And um, that led to some interesting relationships. And the most, I think the most important one was with Don Sandalchiti who, um, she has been trained with uh, Diane Lee, who is a really famous physiotherapist from Canada who wrote the book called The Pelvic Girdle. And um, they have a really interesting approach to looking at people from head to toe and um, and I had been seeing a number of patients with SI problems and with gluteal tendon weakness or gluteal tendon injury, uh, hand proximal hamstring problems, hip joint and labral tears. And, um, and Dawn, who is actually the PT that worked with another person who had on your podcast, Kathleen. Um, let's see, Dawn was at that meeting where, where I was giving the lecture and then she approached me afterwards and she, she said, well. In these patients, their femoral head is coming too anterior, and I don't want to get too technical for everyone, but um, why is that? And so it started me thinking, and then she came up to see me as a patient because she had some of her own issues around that area and taught me a few examination techniques. And uh, and then I was suddenly able to help people more than I had been able to help them in the past through her, uh, I guess you would say, teaching and education to help me. So. I'm pretty open to, you know, whoever wants to try and help me get better at these things. And I think you're one of those people who not only can help me, but can help many patients. And that's why I'm so honored to be invited to your podcast, too, because your website is amazing and all the resources that you have. And it was Kathleen, our shared patient, who, um, who directed me to your site because she said, I think her quote was, you know, there's so many patients that you see that could benefit from the video uh, educational pieces about just how to move and how to walk and how to stand um, even before they get whatever regenerative treatment or surgical treatment that they might need for their lumbopelvic problems. And so, yeah, I mean, it's always been my mindset that it takes a team around a patient. And then if we can be centered on the patient's care then we can do much better um, if we're not just thinking about our own interests as, as providers, but really about the patient's interests. And it, it seems like it should be o- obvious and, and that that should be the usual. But for some reason, it seems not to be the case always. People get kind of siloed in their view of things, and there's plenty of P2s, who PTs that I know of here that feel like they can get it all handled. And then there's doctors I know that feel like they can get it all handled. And I think if we're being honest, we really all need you know one another um, functioning as a team around the patient, and even communicating about them, um, and making sure that we're all moving forward in the same direction. But yes, the, the SI ligaments and Jenny Saunders um, study had been so helpful um, to me just conceptually. And, and I think that the anatomy that she looks at is, is amazing in her study. And they do comparative studies between PRP and Prolo. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but yeah, there is this large population. And, and although it was never a group of people that I really was seeking to work with, they just kept finding me. And, <laughs> and then now it seems, it seems like I, I hate to say this; it sounds narcissistic, but I almost feel like I'm chosen to kind of help to move this field forward, and um, and I and I feel like this is sort of like a coming out. Like I'm okay with that.
1: Brilliant, and I I love that approach. Like the the team, you know, I I don't know if you call it the same thing over in the states, but in the NHS over here, we just call it the multidisciplinary team, um, and okay. and you know, we we work with all the various professions in the in the healthcare bubble and to to try and work to to help the patient together so you know we bring everybody from all the different professions together to help work for the patient and and that's that's the approach that I've always wanted to have and it's yeah really refreshing to hear that from lots of other people as well so um I do want to come back to the study but before we kind of delve into um the study I thought it might be useful for people to hear a little bit about what Um, PRP and prolotherapy are. And I know there are other types of treatment that you do as well, um, which we'll possibly come back to if we've got time to fit that in today. But yeah, I just wondered if you could give us just a bit of an overview on those two treatments, um, what they are, and then perhaps we'll have a bit of a chat about the study afterwards.
2: Absolutely, so uh, prolotherapy and PRP are regenerative injection therapies that are used to help stimulate uh, collagen synthesis in like soft tissue injury is probably the best way to say that. Um, prolotherapy has been used for probably 90 years now. It's, it's there's been a number of different versions of it. The most common this in this day is dextrose, which is a sugar uh, that derives from corn, and we usually have a mixture of a bit of saline, salt water, and a little bit of numbing mixed in with that, and then. You can either do injections into the soft tissue structures uh, by palpation. There's a lot of courses out there about how to do this by palpation guidance, or you can do ultrasound guidance. And again, the ultrasound I think is really key for accuracy, um, but there's some um, you know, gray-haired prolotherapists out there that do an amazing job without the need for ultrasound. And um, so it's the platelet-rich plasma, or the PRP is derived from your own blood. So we, we draw the patient's blood, we then spin it in a centrifuge and we remove those cells that we do not want, particularly um, the red blood cells and the inflammatory white blood cells, but we do keep the ones that we do, which are the platelets themselves and some of the monocytes, which is a type of white blood cell and some of the lymphocytes, the ones that we do want that help with the healing process. And again, we inject that right into the area of soft tissue injury the, the goal of, we call it regenerative um, injection therapy or RIT, the goal of the rejection, regenerative injections is to try and stimulate your body's own healing processes to uh, begin to heal an old injury that wouldn't heal on its own with good physical therapy. And so that's as simple as I can say it. the the, the way in which it works is rather complicated and, and uh, involves growth factor release stem cell activation, your own stem cells actually, they live on your own blood vessels around every organ of your body. And both the platelets and the dextrose have a stimulatory effect as does the needle itself by causing a little micro injury to um, then stimulate that whole healing response to come online. And the Mm -hmm. two main cells that are involved in that are the platelet, which is the cell that causes blood clotting. And then that has a really strong messaging, signaling message to the stem cells to come off of the blood vessel and essentially walk over, there's some videos of this, walk over to the site of the wound and wherever the platelets are, and then kind of set up a healing response to lay down new collagen and uh, and begin the process of soft tissue injury injury healing. Um, And that really does need to be followed by, in my opinion, uh, very specific and very excellent physical therapy to help to load those structures so that they can begin to take more load and then eventually pain will diminish is the idea. It's the, the goal is to improve function and to diminish pain.
1: Absolutely. So when we when we talked about this before, um, like I said, it was a bit like mind blown, right? Because I knew there were some some things that, that very rarely happened in the UK, but I hadn't realized that it was something that was perhaps a little bit more accessible in other areas of the world. So that was really exciting to me to hear that these things were happening a little bit more commonly like I said elsewhere um, and yeah just really open my eyes to want to do a little bit more reading um, into the subject so there is and i will mention your website now because actually i did go back to your website to read all the q a's um and with all of the different treatment um options that you have there is a wonderful um frequently asked questions section for every type of therapy so if you're interested in this i'll put the link to um Tim's website in the bio at the bottom. And if you wanna go and take a little look at that, but yeah, there's questions for every type of treatment and it was really useful for me. And so I hope it will be for anybody else listening as well. But when we were talking about this, we were talking quite specifically about a certain mechanism that you've already briefly mentioned about the the pelvic stability, the pelvic position over the femoral head um, and how some of the treatments that you do mainly sort of in the, the sacral ligament area to help give that little bit more stability. So, would you mind talking a little bit about how that pelvic position over the femoral head can be brought back to those sacral ligaments and the work that you can do specifically with that to help increase that stability?
2: Sure, I'm, I'm glad to. I think it's been an it's been a real complex system to try and understand, and it, I've been trying to understand lumbo pelvic instability and or rotations. SI dysfunction for probably at least fifteen to twenty years, and it's and it's been uh, it's been very challenging for me because I was not an osteopathic physician; I was a medical doctor, and here in the states we also have DOs or doctors of osteopathy, and they seem to be trained in SI dysfunction. And I was fortunate when I did my fellowship that uh, Dr. John Hill at the University of Colorado is a DO or an osteopath, and he began me thinking about that and. Um, taught me some examination skills to begin that journey so then me with you know my analytical mind I tried to understand what was really happening and there's so many studies and so much uh, difference of opinion in the physical therapy literature about does the SI joint move Um, how much does it move can we actually assess what's the position of the bones you know all this inter-rater reliability issues there's just question after question And, and there's actually been turf wars fought you can see the articles like responding <laughs> one to the other in their very argumentative stances and uh there's not a lot of love between those two groups it seems so i feel like i'm also stepping into that bit of a minefield but the what i will say is um it's been absolutely undeniable that as i've begun on this journey of trying to understand how much are the sacroiliac ligaments lax um through examination techniques that really were put forth by Diane Lee and taught to me by Don Sandelchitti um, that I've modified a bit to try and then make an objective assessment about how loose these ligaments are or are not, um, has been that has been revolutionary for me and for my patients because there's so many patients who've been struggling for five or 10 years, after usually after childbirth or a fall onto their bum, um, where they've injured those ligaments and they just never recovered. It's as simple as that. And it's something like an ACL tear in the knee, and if I could use an analogy, if the ACL is torn or loose, then you can do physical examination techniques with the femur and the tibia to feel how loose that is, and how good is the end point, and or not, and so it's a a somewhat objective test. I mean, an MRI, of course, gives us good information about that, but the physical exam is very helpful, and in that way, that's what I'm trying to bring to the sacroiliac ligaments, and I'm going to I'm, I'm endeavoring to uh, get a study together that where I teach people to do this examination technique and try and determine, is there inter reliability? If I teach people for an hour, um, can they learn this skill? And can we agree on what we find? So I'm hopeful that we can get that study done. So if there's any aspiring uh, researchers out there that are interested or people that you know that might want to help us to coordinate that study, I'm open. Um, I have a lot of people that are willing to do the study with me that I've asked. Uh, I just need to f- get someone to help me to coordinate the study itself. And then- i approached
1: by a few people that are doing PhDs to say, do you know where I might be able to find lots of research specifically in these kind of areas? And so, yeah, I'll maybe put them your way if they're looking for topics for their- It's an easy little
2: study. It'll only, there'll only be probably about 10 of us. Um, and we're just trying to see how consistent is our exam. In any case, the, the image I think that's most helpful is this one, is if this is the femoral head, and if this is the acetabulum, can does that show up okay to you, can you see that? Um, so in general, when we think of the femoral head coming into flexion, right, this is the motion that we think about, and this would be the femoral neck down here, and this would be the acetabular position. And the labrum sits right here on the rim at the end of the bone of the acetabulum. And it provides a bit of a seal to the joint, and then it blends into the capsule, which goes down to the bone here. And, um, and if the femoral head is anterior, right, or if the acetabulum is rotated anteriorly, then you can see there's a mismatch, and that labrum just gets beat up, right? So let's say we have an anteriorly rotated ilium, if this is the normal position, and now we're down to here. Every time we come up, that ilium, the, uh, fem- excuse me, the femur is bumping into the labrum sooner than it should. So if we can get that back into its normal position, now it looks like that femoral neck can clear underneath it, doesn't it? Uh, likewise, if the femoral head is, is now, if this is normal position, and if it's anterior, then likewise, it's going to bump into that labrum sooner. So um, the two main structures I think about are when we have that anteriorly rotated ilium are the sacroiliac ligaments, which attach the ilium to the sacrum in the back. And if we can get that pulled back and stay back, then that's going to help that to clear. And the second is for the femoral head, it's coming too anterior. Well, what are the posterior vectors that would pull it posteriorly, right? So we have the posterior aspect of the gluteus medius tendon, we have the glute max, um, we have the short external rotators uh, as the main ones and perhaps a bit piriformis because that goes back to the sacrum as well where it takes its origin. So if we can get those tendons uh, snugged up on the back onto the trochanter, then likely we can get that femoral head to drop back a little bit too. So those are the usual areas that I'm targeting to try and obtain that positional uh, congruity that we want. And I think it's important to state that, in my mind at least, and this is definitely not proven, this is theoretical, but if we're chronically anterior, and this is a very chronic position for people who have chronically injured and lax SI ligaments, um, and we're always banging in, not only does the labrum get degenerative and torn, but the bones are also coming into contact. And we know that bones are osteoconductive and respond to load. And so it would make sense to me that people that maybe maybe people aren't born with femoral acetabular impingement anatomy, but that perhaps it's this chronic bumping that leads to bony change in that femoral neck and uh, leads to that FAI anatomy. So I have a belief that uh, if I can get to these patients you know sooner, and we get their SI ligaments stabilized sooner after their pregnancy and after the delivery. And I think that would be my my main group I'm targeting right now would be uh, OBGYNs. We see these gals um, after their deliveries um, to if, if they're hearing about hip pain and chronic low back pain and SI area pain, um, they're trying to get back to running to lose that weight from their pregnancy, and, they, and they're just unable to do so because of these limitations in their hip and low back um, to get to somebody who can assess this sooner. And a, a good PT should be able to resolve about 80%, according to um, Jennifer Saunders literature, but there might be this other 20%. And I think that that group is in, mostly entailed by people that have hypermobility, or who had significant uh, injury to their ligaments during during birth.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know we we know that the, a lot of a high percentage of the hip dysplasia community do have an element of hypermobility. That the high percentage of people that are dysplastic that have Ellis Danlos, and um, and the the thing that really blew my mind from our last conversation was when you were saying after these injections you know yes you have the the healing the the restoration and it's going through that healing process but actually you get a physical shortening of that ligament as it heals and i was just like mind blown so what's the what's the amount of shortening potential that you can get to increase that stability with the quality of the healing that actually can make a a functional change in how much that acetabulum is going to move over the, the femoral head
2: what a what a great question. Oh my gosh. This is exactly what I asked myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> so again, this this data isn't published anywhere. This is just experiential. And so it's it's just that. And I think we have to take it as that. Um, I think if you talk to the gals who we've treated and how their lives have changed, I think that would be a lot more interesting of an answer
1: um,
2: what they would say. But what what I can tell you is this, is that it looks like if we do a series of prolotherapy injections with the sugar-based solution, maybe three to four of those, um, we can probably get between one half to one millimeter uh, of of less movement or Mm -hmm. snugging up um, and and snugging down of those ligaments. Um, If we do platelet-rich plasma, we can probably expect to get about a, a millimeter with one treatment somewhere around there, one half to one millimeter with one treatment. And that's the difference between those two primarily is that you need about three treatments for every, uh, of prolotherapy for every one platelet-rich plasma treatment on average for these kinds of things. Um, Using other, other, um, I guess tools would be taking somebody's own fat, which has then collagen, which is like a structural scaffold Mm-hmm. Um, and it has some stem cells in it along with many other things um, that in, in patients who are particularly lax. So the grading scale that I use when I'm assessing SI ligamentous laxity has to do with millimeters of movement. And, uh, and in Dr. Um, Lee's textbook, she it's her contention that when you get them in the closed packed position, there should be essentially no movement um, between the ilium and the sacrum That's really not been my experience. I seem to still be able to feel usually about a millimeter of movement in almost everybody. Um, I use a slightly different finger position um, and technique than she does between, I I feel between the two bones. Um, I think she lines up right on the ligament. Um, So if I get to one to two millimeters of of movement with a good end feel and with good recoil is what I call it, like how much elasticity is in the ligament to get it to to pull back into position, um, I feel quite good about that and those almost always they then will have instability of the lumbopelvic region and they'll begin to be able to activate their gluteal muscles, which has really been the biggest problem with SI instability is this lack of ability to significantly be able to find the glute med to activate it or initiate. Uh, It's like a motor control problem is what it looks like when you're assessing them with physical therapy techniques. And until we get the SI ligament stable, they just never get good initiation and early strength in an abducted position when you isolate the glute med. So um, my goal is if if they're at like say three or three or more millimeters of motion with a poor endpoint, something like what an ACL tear might feel like, um, then I, I try and throw more at that early if their goal is to get better sooner. Um, If they're more patient, then we can just kind of take our time and do something less aggressive. But uh, I think that the study by Dr. Saunders suggests that PRP is better at a year out with only one to two treatments than prolotherapy with an average of three to four treatments for SI dysfunction. And I completely concur. And I also have found that the, um, the laxity that I feel seems to improve more greatly with the platelets than with just the sugar. So um, yeah, it, about the worst that I've found is maybe five millimeters of motion. It doesn't seem like it, you can get much more than that. Probably four and a half is, is, is really bad. Anything over four <laughs> millimeters is really bad. Um, and anything over two, I consider to be, uh, abnormal for sure. Okay. So in that two to four and a half millimeter range, and we try and, if we can get it back to two, that's kind of my goal is to get it back to two.
1: Amazing. So if people were to, to come and have um, this kind of treatment done, what's the kind of? You said obviously things need to be quite specific with the physiotherapy afterwards, you know, re- relearning and really getting control of positions, movements, activating certain particular muscles. What's the kind of time frame um, that you look at? Because I get this question a lot. You know, if I do this, how long will it take to get to be able to do this or to do that? What are the kind of time frames for the patient experience? So in order to potentially feel some change in their pain or their function or their quality of life.
2: Yeah, so timelines are slow. Many of these individuals have had these problems for five to 10 years. Yeah. And so the longer the duration, the slower the, the progress in general, and the, and the greater the severity, the slower. Uh, In general, when we do a regenerative treatment, whether it's for the rotator cuff or for knee arthritis or for SI ligaments, Mm -hmm. it it roughly takes 100 days to see the majority of the benefit of the treatment. So between three and four months on average is what I try and counsel my patients um, before they'll probably feel like the majority of the benefit is in of uh, what we have treated. As far as objective findings, those tend to improve a lot more quickly than the subjective. So uh, what, we, what I mean by that is that the lumbopelvic imbalances, because we usually snug them into an SI belt after these mm-hmm. treatments to hold them in a good closed tight position for somewhere around four weeks typically. Um, and we go through a good physio program of core activation of the transverse abdominus multifidus and then eventually glutes. Once, once you have TA and multifidi, then you earn the right to begin to load the glutes, but not until then. Um, we like to see we like to see stability of the the lumbar pelvic region in that four to six week range, mm-hmm. um, and the ability to initiate and activate glute med usually is improved in that four to six week timeframe as well. Okay. So that first visit, which is the follow up visit around six weeks typically, I'm I'm really not talking about how's your pain, how's your function. I'm asking what's your what's your physio saying about your position, your stability, mm-hmm. and your ability to activate your glute. And if they say oh well yeah, I'm I'm the same. However, my PT is ecstatic. That's what we're looking for at that six-week visit. And then at the three to four-month visit, that's when we usually expect to be hearing, oh, now I'm able to do these things that I couldn't do before. And there's almost always more that we have to do down the road, whether it has to do with the gluteal tendons or the hamstring tendons or the low back, because once the SI ligaments have become lax, then people start um, stressing all these other surrounding structures and using them preferentially as substitution patterns. So they break down in their hamstrings and they break down in their adductors and in their low back and L5S1 in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes even up and onto the ribs through what we call the lateral refae. And that's that connection uh, where your obliques and your abdominal like TA hooks into QL um, in the low back and meets the paraspinals there. Mm -hmm. That's the lateral refae where your front meets your back. And uh, that's a real strong anchoring point that a lot of load goes through when the SI has been chronically dysfunctional. And so oftentimes that breaks down too and we have to then do further treatments into that area.
1: It sounds, it sounds like really setting the expectations for, for people is is really key, right? And I think it's quite reassuring for people to hear that actually it's quite normal to see objective changes before you feel the changes in you know your day to day life. And I think that's that's really a key thing to understand with this stuff because again Mm -hmm. I'll I'll have people come into my clinic and they'll be like, oh nothing's changed. I'm still the same and my pain is still the same. And I'm like, okay, but can you do this? Oh yeah I can do that. (laughs) Okay. Well can you do this? Well yeah I can do that. But you couldn't do that three weeks ago. So that's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) Um so you know just having those having those reminders that actually some of the the experiences that they're going to feel day to day might come a bit further down the line, but that that's okay and that's normal um, to to have in this process. I think is quite reassuring to to know that. I think sometimes people can feel like um, a treatment should just be a magic cure, right? That it should just be okay. It's done. That should be better now. But knowing that that expectation is that it is a journey. It's something that you have to invest in, not only from you know potentially a, a financial aspect, but it's about putting yourself first and really knowing that it's not just about the injection, right? It's about the way that you think about it, the way that you treat your body, the way you hold yourself day to day and your mindset for putting yourself first in your day to day and doing the work to make it work long-term. It's not ever going to be a quick fix with a chronic condition, right?
2: I love that. And, and I think that I would, I think it's really important for us to talk about that because, um, In this particular situation, these individuals, if it's been five or ten years, they've usually been through a lot of medical treatment already, Um, most oftentimes by spine and or pain specialists, and they've had a number of treatments including epidural steroid injections, maybe even SI steroid joint injections, uh, maybe radiofrequency ablations of nerves, um, maybe even surgery in the lumbar region. maybe they've had a hip labral repair, maybe they've been told that they need to have a, a periacetabular osteotomy um, if they're borderline on hip dysplasia. So uh, maybe they've had an SI fusion, um, maybe they've had pain, you know, like spinal cord stimulator implantations. I mean, there's there's oftentimes a lot of backstory with the medical community that has been a sad story and that has left people feeling hopeless. And so I think that's a really important area to address of like, not just, Being able to say, well, yeah, but look what you can do. I mean, that's helpful because that gives them objective things to hold on to. But it's these are people, oftentimes that they've really lost hope in the medical system's ability to help them. It feels like they've just kind of slipped through, and well, in fact, they have. And and I think that's another for me. That's another reason why I feel like it's maybe this is okay to um, to maybe make this part of um, like what what the rest of my life is about because. it's emotional because it's hard, just hard to see.
1: It really, really shows how passionate you are about your patients and the care that you have. And I think it's it's so important for people to know that there are practitioners out there that really do care about Mm -hmm. patients. Um, And one of the You know, one of the things that I wanted to really prioritize in my career, and it sounds like you really had this, this approach too, is that you want to work as a more, perhaps a private practitioner, because it means that you have the time to dedicate to your patients as an individual, to really get to know them as a person and really make your approaches personalized to, to treat them as a whole. It's not just about their condition, their injury, that area of their body. It's about them as a, as a whole. And, right. and it, really, it really shows that you, you care tremendously about your patients and the work that you do. And I want to just thank you on behalf of the entire hip dysplasia community um, <laughs> for, for being passionate about this and the research mm-hmm. that you're doing and the work that you're doing to try and develop these processes to help that group of people that are, are really struggling. It must be really, really challenging to see people that are, that are struggling so much.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really, it really has been like, it's been surprising, really, uh, how, how I think it, I think it comes down to that this is just a very complex problem. If I'm being honest, I think SI dysfunction and SI instability is just not something that was ever really um, much approached by the people that trained me. And, and, um, and like I mentioned earlier, I mean, there's, there's just been a lot of debate about it. Mm-hmm. And it feels like you're entering a battlefield. Um, and so there's maybe some discouragement because if you're younger in your career and you believe something about this that you really can't assess, you know, if the, if the SI joint and ligaments are, are problematic and other people tell you, no, you know, I've, I had a person when I was in my training during my fellowship who was a physiatrist who said, oh, those ligaments, they don't move. They're too strong. It's impossible. You know, just don't even have that thought. And so I had to take that into consideration in my thinking about this, and um, and of course my my view on it is completely one hundred and eighty different than that at this point, and that it's it is actually a critical piece in the stability of somebody's entire core. It's at the base of their pelvis, of their core is you know the pubic symphysis and the SI ligaments, those joints, and then the hips come off of that, of course, and then the spine connects to that, but. Um, yeah, if, if you're not stable, it's like a house, right? If it's not stable on its foundation, then you can't build a stable house. You have to put in the footers first and then the foundation, and then you can start talking about windows and doors and colors of paint. But until you have that stability uh, at the deepest part of a person's core, um, it's very difficult for them to move forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, this ligament that you're talking about, the stable ligament, so the dorsal interosseous ligament. Again, when I was doing a little bit more reading after this conversation with you, um, I don't think I really appreciated before and obviously I've knew some of the facts but I don't think I really appreciated how much weight that ligament has to take right so you know in this article that I was reading it was like it supports the whole of the weight of the torso and the upper limbs and the head like literally all of the weight of your upper body is is basically being stabilized by these super super strong um ligaments in your in your pelvis in that sacroiliac area and you just when you realize how much weight and movement has to be stabilized further you realize that actually this is this is a pretty big pretty big deal and no wonder it gets uh it gets blamed with a lot of issues and um, when it has to do so much so
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, right. so i want to be respectful of your time today and want to start wrapping this up and um, but i just want to thank you so so much for coming on and sharing some of the information about some of the work that you're doing and you know, I'm just so excited to get to have the opportunity to talk to more practitioners that are filling in the gaps, right? So a lot of people will hopefully fit into mainstream treatments and procedures. For those people that don't, you know, you're, you're the people that are fighting for the people that aren't fitting into mainstream treatments. So yeah, I just want to thank you so much for your time, for the work that you do. And, and I hope people have found this conversation really interesting and know that there are Potentially a few other options out there. So I would absolutely love to keep in touch um, and hear a little bit more about the um, testing that you're doing um, and the integrated reliability that you're going for. So um, yeah, I would love to keep in touch if that would be okay.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity today to um, to share some time with you. Yeah, it's always a joy to be with you as well, Laura. And uh, mm-hmm. and thank you for all the work that you put in. It really is amazing. Talk you talk about resources on a website, and I feel like um, that's the time that you put into yours uh, far surpasses what I put into mine, and and I look forward to getting my patients that are in these situations to be able to hopefully you know j- sign up for the, the the small amount of cost <laughs> compared to the rest of you know going to the actual physio. Um, and I really appreciate you putting that out there, um, and I look forward to the opportunity to continue to continue this conversation
1: as well. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. All righty. thank you so much for listening.
0: We'll be back next week again with another inspiring and incredible guest. If you'd like to be on the podcast and come and share your story, then please just send me an email at laura at You can also find me on Instagram at laura.ratterford or by searching help for hip dysplasia
1: and send me a message on there. I really look forward to speaking with you. We'll see you again next week.